Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. It's great when right from the beginning of a meeting, a theme starts to develop, and then when God says something about it as well. And something that started right from the notices this morning was the whole theme that when we pray, God answers. Now, he might not always give us the answer we expect. He might not always give us the answer we want. But when we pray, God answers. And that's quite relevant. Because this morning, we are going to go another stage further in our series about Jesus. In John 16, verse 28, it says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Do you know, it doesn't matter where you look. Almost everywhere you look today, there are images of Jesus. He creeps into television programs. He's there in films. He's on t-shirts. He's in magazines. He's in websites. He's in people's blogs. There are books. There's artwork. And you can even get Jesus tattoos. But at the end of the day, where is Jesus today? The author, Philip Yancey, said, By ascending... By going from earth back up to heaven, Jesus took a big risk. He took the risk of being forgotten. And somehow, there seems to be something tragically accurate about those words. Because there's a lot of people who go through years of their lives and then can't remember whether they ever thought about Jesus or not. And whether they wondered whether he was alive today, and if so, where he was and what he was doing. In an interview, people on the street were asked their opinions about Jesus. And it was part of a a survey to find out how many people had forgotten about him now that there is no longer, he is no longer here visibly on the earth with us. Now, when they did that survey, Almost everyone they spoke to knew at least two parts of scripture. One that most of them knew was the bit from Genesis where it said every seed-bearing plant was good. And the other was one from one of the Gospels about not judging other people. And these people gave some interesting answers when they were asked where they thought Jesus is today. One guy, I'll let you think about what substances he might have been using, was absolutely adamant that he'd seen him at a recent festival. But the most common answer that was received 
was that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because it's actually little more than a legend. In the same way, even in Jesus' days, there were Jews who believed that Jesus never did rise. They believed that his body was stolen. Now, if that was true, what it would mean is that Jesus is still very much dead today. Later on in church history, some of the pseudo-Christian heretics denied the possibility of Jesus' miracles. And they tended to agree as well that Jesus was dead. The American president, Thomas Jefferson, he sat down in the White House one day with a razor in one hand and a Bible in the other and he cut out all the parts of scripture that he felt were untrue. And what he was left with was nothing more than a philosophy if you like, the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. The life and times of Jesus. Do you know, only one in ten verses survived. Because he took out all the miracles. Because, well, they couldn't be factual, could they? He took out everything about the resurrection. Everything that couldn't be proved, he cut out systematically from scripture. And what he was left with was nothing more than a humanist philosopher. In 1985, following on that idea by Jefferson, 200 people from the Jesus Seminar gathered to vote on the words and deeds of Jesus and how likely they were to be true as recorded in scripture. What they came up with was that only 18% of what is recorded as Jesus' words in the gospel were actually said by him. In fact, they believed that only one statement out of the whole gospel of Mark was worth leaving in. Even the most critical of them didn't feel that scripture was a lot better than that. Now, these are guys who, when you stop and think about it, have been educated beyond their own intelligence, I think. Because people who have nothing to do with Christianity believe more than that. But Jehovah's Witnesses believe that although Jesus didn't rise physically, they believe he was a great man. The Muslims believe he was a great prophet. Even, according to the Da Vinci Code, there was something about him. Okay, so Jesus ran off to France, got married and had a whole load of kids, but there was still something about him. But in the answer to this, the Bible tells us a lot about what, where Jesus is today and what he's doing. Because he's the second part of the Trinity. And Jesus has ruled from eternity past as part of the Godhead, exalted in glory. That's the first truth of it. Christ is eternal. And then he chose to humble himself and enter into human history as a man. 
to identify with us. And throughout his life on earth, he repeatedly said that following his death, his burial and his resurrection, he would ascend back to heaven where he'd come from. This is the glorious exaltation of Jesus. But for some reason, when many people think of Jesus, they only understand it in terms of his past humble incarnation. And what they neglect to consider is his current glorious exaltation. If we were to see Jesus today, we wouldn't see a homeless, humble, marginalised Galilean peasant. Instead, we would see Jesus in all his glorious splendour in heaven. Hundreds of years before he was born, Isaiah was given an opportunity to see the Lord in this glorious state of exaltation. We read in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, oh, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah wasn't the only one. John later revealed that Isaiah saw none other than Jesus Christ. And you can check that in John 12:41. But he wasn't only present as an eyewitness during the life of Christ, but he, like Isaiah, was given an opportunity of seeing Jesus following his ascension. His report of Jesus in glorious exaltation is recorded in Revelation 19. And here, Jesus isn't shown as that meek and mild figure. He's shown as a warrior king who rides into battle against the evil one. Who rides and fights against sin and death on a mighty horse. And that's how we would see him. If we were to see Jesus today, we would see him in glory, not humility. We would see a Jesus who would never again be beaten, but is coming back to look on the unrepentant until their blood flows across this earth like grapes in the violence of a winepress. That's how it's described in scripture. Echoing that vision, one Christian author has compared the ascension of Jesus 
to the journey home of a valiant, triumphant soldier after a great victory in war. And do you know what? That soldier's coming back again. Too often, our beliefs about Jesus, what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus, is derived almost exclusively from the four Gospels. And while they do faithfully tell us about what Jesus did on his earthly life, the pictures that come out of that are incomplete because what we see is the humble incarnation rather than the glorious exaltation of Jesus. And so the book of Revelation is an incredibly important book because it's a book about Jesus. It's no less a book about Jesus than the four Gospels. And that book primarily reveals to us the picture of Jesus in heaven as opposed to Jesus on earth. Sadly, over the years, it's become a bit of a fishing pond for Christian nutters, if I'm honest, who have an affinity for drawing nice little charts and becoming obsessed with endless debates about what the mark of the beast means, who the Antichrist is, and whether the European Union is the end of the world. They talk about whether locusts are actually a code word for Black Hawk helicopters. And such people, well, they need something. I think they need some proper medication and they need a new hobby. Because that isn't what Revelation is about. Revelation is a glimpse of our exalted Christ in heaven. It's a book about Jesus. And it says that in the opening lines. In Revelation 1.1, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to see a proper picture of what Jesus is like today requires that we stop looking for a moment at his life, his death, his burial and resurrection and instead look at his ascension back to his throne. Funny enough, there's few books written about this. There are hundreds of books written about his death and the tomb, but very few about his ascension. Very few about the exaltation of him which is now happening. And I think that contributes to why we sometimes have this weak impression of Jesus. So let's have a quick look at what the Bible teaches beginning with Jesus' final moments on earth. Firstly, Jesus physically ascended into heaven. When we did our series earlier on Acts, we saw that following his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus spent 40 days living his life out in the open, publicly visible. And he did that to assure people that he had in fact conquered sin and death. And you can read about that in the opening verses of Acts chapter 1. And then he said his final words to his followers. It says in Acts 1 verse 9, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, 
and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. Having completed his mission on earth, Jesus returned to heaven. Where he'd come from. That shouldn't have been a surprise, because that is precisely what he had said would happen. If you look in John 16, 28, he said, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Not only did Jesus enter into human history in a physical body in his incarnation, but he also died, rose and ascended back to heaven in a physical body. And Acts 1 verse 11 says that Jesus will return one day in the same way. And what that means is Jesus continues to have a resurrection and glorified body. And when he returns, he will come back in that glorified human body. Now, that's an important point. Because over the years there has been so much Greek thinking that has found its way into the church. What I mean by that is Greek thinking separates the physical and the spiritual. And it considers anything that is spiritual to be good and anything that is physical to be bad. So the logical conclusion, if you take that view, is that heaven is a place where we lose our physical bodies and live forever in non-physical spirit form. That's the conclusion of Greek thinking, influencing our perception of the ascension. But the view of heaven in the Bible is different. It is of a redeemed creation. A creation which has had its faults removed because it's free of sin, free of death and free of the curse of the fall. And where we live together with Jesus in new resurrection bodies. And so it's important that we see that Jesus ascended into heaven and that this ascension was physical. Because he is the pattern for our future resurrection. And you can read about that more in 1 Corinthians 15. The second thing. Jesus is in heaven with departed believers. Not only did Jesus ascend into heaven, but it says he took his Old Testament people with him. Now they had been waiting for Jesus to come and take them. And they went on his ascension. In some ways they were like a waiting, in like a waiting room at the airport. You know what it's like? You've been through security, you've booked in. But then you have to wait before you can board your flight. And embark on your journey to your final destination. And upon his ascension into heaven, following his resurrection... Jesus took those with him who had previously died with faith in him. And that was because heaven was closed until Jesus opened it. And he opened it with his return in victory over sin. Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. 
us are now. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Throughout scripture, the right hand is denoted as something special. The right hand is used for swearing oaths. You can read about that in Genesis 14.22. And it's the right hand as well with which you give blessing. You can read about that in Genesis 48.17. God's right hand is also said to be a place of righteousness. In Psalm 48 verse 10. And it is the centre of God's might. And it talks about that in Psalm 80.15. So to be at the right side of God is to be sat in a place of blessing and honour and might. And so it's not surprising to hear that following his ascension, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. There are two scriptures that are particularly relevant on this. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord and it's referring to God the Father, says to my Lord, referring to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then picking up on that theme, Jesus said in Matthew 26:64, I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. Today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as such, he will never again be subject to the disrespect that he endured during his earthly life. Not only is he on the right hand of the Father, but it talks about Jesus sitting on a throne. That imagery of a throne crops up 196 times in scripture. 135 of those occurrences are in the Old Testament and 61 of them in the New Testament. And if you look at the New Testament occurrences, 45 of them, so 45 of 61, are actually in the book of Revelation. The imagery of the throne appears in 17 of its 22 chapters. And you'll find most of them are actually in Revelation 4. That imagery is really strong. The person sitting on the throne in heaven throughout Revelation is the ascended Jesus Christ. You have to understand that this was written in a day when most people sat on the floor. They sat on the floor, they squatted, or they reclined. Reserved for kings, priests, and warriors. That's what thrones were. Kings, priests, and warriors. And throughout Revelation, Jesus is portrayed as each of those. As a king, Jesus rules over all creation from his throne. As a priest, Jesus mediates between us and God the Father. And as a warrior, he sits in triumph over Satan, over sin and over death. Jesus 
rules and reigns as a sovereign king and lord. From his throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus is currently ruling. He's reigning as sovereign, as king and as lord. And everything and everyone is under his rule. Nothing is beyond his rule and authority. The Bible says that repeatedly and it's emphatic on it. It explains that Jesus' sovereign rule is over all things. You can look in Matthew 11:27, in John 3:35, in Acts 10:36, in Ephesians 1:22, in Colossians 1:17 and 18. They all reinforce that view. Now, in the early days following his ascension, it was an exclusive claim of Jesus that he had unparalleled supremacy and was the only king and the only God who ruled over all other kings, all other kingdoms, all gods and religions. And it was that that made the Christians and their claims so controversial and hated in the early church. There was great pressure put on the early followers of Jesus to step back from that claim and to just say, no, he rules in my heart, he rules in my family and he rules in our church. But the scriptures clearly, repeatedly and unashamedly declare that Jesus rules over all. Over all people, over all time, over all places, all cultures, all things. And that's an uncomfortable thought for some. And now, Jesus intercedes as our mediator. Because not only is he alive, but he continues to minister for us in his glorified, resurrected body. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Paul picks that up when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 and he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in the letter to the Hebrews it says, Jesus always lives to make intercession. That's in Hebrews 7.25. As our living, exalted Lord of all, Jesus is the only one who can mediate between men and God. Because he is the only one who has been both, having humbly become a human in his incarnation. It's only through Jesus that we can have a relationship of forgiven sin and new life with God the Father. 
some people feel that this needs to be disputed because they see it as discriminatory or exclusive because it discriminates against other religions and beliefs but also feel they have mediators in addition to or in the place of Christ but scripture's clear Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through me Paul says for there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus and then to crown all this off Jesus goes on and gives us his spiritual authority this is one of the most stunning things in all the scripture really not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father exalted in glory but we by grace and faith in Christ are seated with him we're seated with him positionally what that means is it's as if we were sat there with him in Ephesians 2 verse 6 it says God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and looking at that Paul then says in 1 Corinthians 6 3 do you not know that we are to judge the angels amazing but today as Christians we possess the delegated spiritual authority of the exalted Christ and one day we will join Jesus in the judgment of the angels and the demons what does this mean in practice well it means although at the moment we remain physically on earth in our imperfect physical bodies spiritually we are seated with Jesus in heaven and we are granted the use of Jesus' spiritual authority over Satan and over demons that's why we no longer have to give in to Satan's temptation we no longer have to believe his lies and we no longer live under the condemnation of his accusations because Jesus has ascended because he rules over all and because that authority has been given to us and so we who are his people can walk in his spiritual power and his victory So because of that, every Christian has the authority to resist Satan, to resist the demonic and command them to flee in Jesus' name. And then Jesus has made some wonderful promises. He says he is preparing a room for us in his father's house. Jesus' ascension to heaven is a pattern for our own future. 
And so for those who die today with faith in Jesus, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. And one day they will rise from death to live forever in God's kingdom in a glorified, resurrected body just like Jesus. And Jesus described heaven as a glorious home owned by God the Father. And it says it has a well-prepared room for each of us. For each of us to live in forever as part of God's family. And finally, Jesus is with us as we bring the gospel to the world. Just before his ascension, Jesus gave his followers the final orders. We read about them in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus declared that he alone possesses all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus is alive and well and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father on a throne. He's being worshipped as God by angels. He rules and reigns in exalted glory as Lord over everything. In practical terms it means he has the authority over the money we spend over the food we eat, over the websites we watch, the words we speak, the places we go, the attitudes we protect, the ideas we consider, the friends we embrace, the TV we watch, the drinks we consume, the hobbies we enjoy, and the work we do. Because Jesus has authority over all people and all things. And there's no exceptions. By grace, we love and are loved by this glorious and exalted Jesus who we should worship unceasingly, serve unwaveringly, proclaim unashamedly until one day we bow with our face at his feet. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 